Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Latin on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure. We are getting back to this series, and due to popular demand, uh, Dr. Fleming has told us, we're going to be changing the format of the pods to be shorter and broken up into various parts. So today is part one of a two-part mini-series within our uh within ours within our podcast series and we'll see how how it goes after that where should we start dr fleming well Stephen, i'd like you to uh read the opening of of a very simple late roman historical work it's uh eutropius is uh breviarium historiae romani this was read uh throughout the medieval period it's a it's all it's like a school textbook uh, to uh, the ancient history of Rome. And if you could just read the first paragraph. And for our listeners, the text is in the show notes if you want to follow along with with my own uh, reading, which, of course, I'll be f- mentally flinching for, for Dr. Fleming's corrections. <laughs> Romanum Imperium, quo neque ab exordio ulum fere minus neque incrementis toto orbe amplius, humana potest memoria recordari, a Romulo exordium abet, qui re Silviae, Vestalis Virginis, filius, et quantum putatus est, martis cum remo fratre uno partu ex editus est. Iscum inter pastores latrocina retur, decem et octo annos natus urbem exiguam in Palatino, monte constituit undecim calens meas, Olympiads sexte anno terto, post Troie excidium, excidium ut qui plurimum minimumque tradunt, anno trecentissimo, nonagesimo quarto. Okay, thank you. Now, um, I'm going to read the, uh, uh, a, uh, an old-fashioned translation which follows uh, the Latin fairly uh, carefully. Um, the Roman Empire, than which the memory of man can recall scarcely any one smaller in its commencement or greater in its progress throughout the world, had its origin from Romulus, who being the son of a Vestal Virgin, and as was supposed of Mars, was brought forth at one birth with his brother Remus. While leading a predatory life among the shepherds, he founded, when he was 18 years of age, a small city on the Palatine Hill on the 21st day of April, in the third year of the sixth Olympiad, and 394th after the destruction of Troy. Okay, now, in uh, earlier episodes, uh, we've talked about the fact that there are, there, are two, there are different ways of reading a Latin text, and both ways are, can be very useful. Um, there is... Uh, when you're having to read large amounts of Latin, you've got to sight-read and sort of do the best you can and to get the basic sense. And, uh, of course, you get better and better and better. 
But you also need periods in which you uh, read the text very carefully, doing what English teachers used to say, uh, parsing. Now, we all remember uh, that the word uh, parse once had a real specific, a specific meaning, and which has been corrupted by the media ever since uh, Bill Clinton began logic chopping and uh, basically lying in his teeth about his relations with uh, various women. He, uh, this was referred to as uh, parsing his words. Well, he, when you parse a word, this is how you do it. You, you take, uh, for example, um, the first word, Romanum. You say, well, that is an adjective. It agrees with imperium, and therefore it is a neuter adjective, singular, in the nominative case, used as the subject of the sentence. That's parsing. Not, I never had a relationship with that woman. That is not parsing. That's just lying. So, <laughs> but it's amazing how, uh, in political discourse, how, how words, as Thucydides observed so long ago in his uh, History of the Peloponnesian War, words in revolutionary states change their meaning. And those who control the language, namely politicians and journalists, uh, distort the language so that uh, it becomes corrupt and incapable of uh, telling the truth or describing reality. And this is one of the reasons why dead languages are so important to us, because it's so difficult to lie uh, in using Latin and Greek. And lies are uh, transparent because they have to be explicit. All right. Now, in this, uh, let's, uh, let's look a little bit at, uh, at some of the words. It just if, if we, I've already given you an over, a, uh, a kind of superficial uh, translation. Um, notice, though, if we're going to start looking at it, Romanum Imperium, the Roman Empire, quo, uh, than which... Neither from its origin, see, than which, ablative of comparison. So we're immediately, even just in this very simple text, we're immediately in, involved in, uh, in uh, a complexity of expression we don't find in English. Toto orbe, this is the ablative of place where? In all the world. Or memoria, if we're parsing these words. Uh, this is... By, by means of memory. We, would, we say in memory, the, the, the Romans say by memory or by means of memory. Uh, so to, to record something by means of memory is to recall or remember. Partu uh, is uh, in, uh, let's see, this is, uh, do, 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 do. Yes, um, he, ha his, he was brought forth in one birth, uno partu with his brother Remus, cum remo fratre. So partus is a fourth declension noun, and we're going to be talking about fourth declension nouns in this, uh, this two-part lesson. So it's a fourth declension noun in the ablative case, and uh, in, uh, here it means it's probably um, uh, to expressing the either the means or the origin of his being uh, brought to light. 
So, do you have any questions on this passage, Stephen? Well, you got a, lots of ablatives here, and I think that's always the nightmare of Latin students yeah. is ablative of blank, and you can throw 20 things in there. Oh, at least and, uh, at least 36. <laughs> okay, at least 36. So I know there's not 36 in here, but maybe um, highlight a few ablatives here that you want us to look at. Okay. The, uh, we're going to take up ab- ablatives uh, in a future lesson, and I will give you my uh, brilliant patented analysis of the ablative case, but it doesn't hurt to anticipate a bit. The ablative case has basically, you can break down its dozens and dozens of, of uses into three groups. One is place where. Uh, there used, there had been in uh, in predecessor languages of Latin and in and in early Greek, there is a special case form for expressing place where, which can also be time when, because time and space expressions tend to be parallel, and so we have expressions like here, um, uh, in Palatino Monte. You see, place where. Another use of the ablative is um, what is called the ablative ablative, which is not very helpful if you don't know what the word ablative means. Ablativos <laughs> comes from the verb alfero, that is alfero, alfere, uh, abstuli, ab, ab, ablatus. It means taking away. So the ablative case is the case, the ablative sense is the case of separation of taking one thing from another. So it can mean from from where, for example, or be, to be deprived of. So ab exordio is, an, is, a, is one of the ablative ablatives, from the uh, beginning, um, from, its, from its origins. Let's see, what else have we got here? Anno trecentesimo, in the... Uh, um, uh, three, 300th year. This is, uh, of course, an ablative of time when, which is part of that category of a uh, place where. And memoria, memoria, is the third, illustrates the third kind of ablative, which are ablatives of, um, with, which can be often translated by the word with or sometimes by. These are the ablatives of by means of or accompaniment with and or the manner by which, so uh, there, it's, it's the whole set of with ablatives. So we have all three of those classes in this one paragraph. Does that uh, solve your problem? Well, it begins to solve my problem. Okay. Well, well, we're taking up, uh, we'll take up the accusative case this lesson, and so we'll go on to the ablative case in the next lesson. One of the things I wanted to point out, this, uh, in this long sentence, you know, look at the way, even in the English in which it begins, the Roman Empire, than which the memory of man can recall scarcely any one smaller in its commencement or greater in its progress, etc., etc., etc. Now, <clears throat> no one since Dr. Johnson has probably spoken this way, uh, with this neat elegance of expression. By elegance, I'm using it in the scientific sense. When scientists talk about a proof, about a, a proof or something being elegant, they mean that the, the fewest means are used to accomplish the greatest object. And Latin uh, works that way. It, it's neat, compact, coherent. 
Now, one of the problems in English is that when we translate Latin, we tend to break it up into short sentences. So we would say, um, the memory of man can recall scarcely anyone smaller than the Roman Empire or greater in its progress. This empire had its origin from Romulus. He was the son of the Vestal Ver. See, we'd, we'd break up this one long sentence into four or five simple or compound sentences. And um, this uh, is sometimes not so effective. And since one of the things we're taking up is the Christian and ecclesiastical uses of Latin in this course, I thought I would bring, uh, bring up uh, a place where every time uh, I, uh, I'm in church and I hear the St. Michael prayer in English, I'm slightly annoyed. Because, would you read the, um, the uh, beginning with tuque, the uh, tuque princeps militiae celestis, the end of the St. Michael prayer? Tuque princeps militiae celestis, satana maliosque spiritus malignos, quiad perditione manimatum pervagantur in mundo divina virtute in infernum detrude. Amen. Yeah, now if you remember, their, their churches use various translations, but it's saying, you, O prince of the heavenly host, uh, cast into hell uh, those, um, uh, what is it, wicked spirits who prowl or roam the world, uh, uh, so by your by your divine power, who roam the world, uh, seeking the ruin of souls. Now this is uh, this is sort of amusing because in the um, in the English it's got a rather gloomy ending. We end with just Satan seeking the ruin of souls. This is not very uplifting. Whereas the Latin, because you can put this whole thing into one balanced sentence, and by the way, remember this Latin is only, you know, uh, 115 years old or something. It's this isn't this isn't Ciceronian. This is excellent uh, Neo-Latin, and it ends with Divina Virtute in Infernum Infernum De Trude. By the by, thy divine power or virtue into hell cast. In other words, the action of uh, St. Michael using, uh, using power given to him by the Creator is the, the last, with the, we have this joyful note, cast, into hell cast them. Now this is quite, this is quite a, a, a nice and positive ending, I, whereas uh, thinking about the spirits prowling the ruin of, looking, seeking the ruin of souls is not very uplifting. No, definitely not. Yeah. So you 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 picked. I mean, obviously, there's a Saint Michael prayer here, and you picked this original text uh, for us to read from. What are some other good starting texts for elementary students? Um, the uh, we've talked about. So if you if you're uh, homeschooling, for example, or have a little school, um, I um my 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 recommendation usually is to start with the uh, Cambridge Latin course. It's fairly, um, it's fairly slow about presenting grammar. It does a slightly faster job than the, than the earlier editions did. But, um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of prequel to the series called Minimus, little joke. Minimus meaning the littlest, but this is Minimus, the littlest mouse. So it's a silly, you know, it's for, it's for first, for kindergarten and first grade kids. 
with uh, cartoon illustrations teaching them Latin, but it's done, unlike a lot of the programs done, say, uh, for American schools, it's done by people who actually are quite well trained in Latin, and the whole Cambridge Latin course is good. In some, uh, we're going to have some episodes where either Stephen and I or, uh, or I alone will be interviewing a Latin teacher who is just starting out at middle school using the Cambridge course, and we're going to talk about the problem she has. Now, this is somebody whose who's Latinity is owed to me because I'm her father and uh, taught her Latin at home. But our daughter, uh, my daughter Eleanor, who is will be, is starting to teach Latin in uh, a, a Catholic school in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I think uh, and she's usually uh, uh, has been calling and consulting and emailing. So I think she'll be a real uh, you know having this hands-on teacher trying to confront uh, modern youth will be amusing. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, it should be fun. I think I think we'll be technologically up uh, to the point of being able to do a three-way conversation. We'll see. Yes. Well, you mentioned that we were going to talk about the fourth declension today. Do you want to do that? Yeah. The fourth declension is the U declension. Now, most first-year Latin students say, "Well, wait a minute. The second declension is the is the U declension, amicus." You know. Uh, and the fact is that all the U's in that second declension, amico, samiki, amico, amicum, amico, those U's are the result of a um, shortening of an original O vowel. It was originally amicos, amiki, or amicoi, uh, etc., and amicum. And you even find some old Latin texts, that is, you know, very early texts, where, uh, uh, where you'll see the, the O, in some cases, being retained. But so the fourth declension, and we're, we, we only have two more declensions to discuss, the fourth and the fifth. I know this comes as a relief. The fourth declension is the U declension. That is, that is, the, that is the, the base vowel of the declension. Um, it consists mostly of masculine nouns, and there's a sprinkling of feminine nouns and uh, just one or two neuter nouns. Masculine and feminine nouns in the fourth declension are declined alike. And um, in classical Latin and early Latin, the standard dative ending for the masculine and feminine nouns is ui. That is U-I, though in ecclesiastical Latin, and in fact in post-classical Latin in general, you see it most often just as U. So, Stephen, could you decline for me the simple noun fructus? I just wanted to ask before that, Dr. Fleming, what was the reason for that? I, I don't want to say corruption, but maybe elision. Um, I just, I don't know, because, you know, it's funny, because I is usually, in all the other declensions, there's an E, it gets lost in the second, but I is really the sign of the dative. So, I think it was just ease of pronunciation, uh, but uh, maybe they didn't like to say ui. <laughs> so, as I decline it, do you want me to use the easy one, or? No, use the, uh, use the, uh, use the classical 
Okay. Fructus, fructus, fructui, fructum, fructu. Fructus, fructum, fructibus, fructus, fructibus. Okay. Now let's look a little closer. Now, the, so the ending, fructus, short u, is nominative singular. Whereas the genitive singular, fructus, that's, that's lengthened just as it is in the nominative plural, fructus. And, um, and in the, uh, de- the ablative, fructu, that's also long. Um, the, uh, there are two U's, and I, I suspect that in, uh, by the medieval period they're saying something close to fructuum, but they're probably saying fructuum, they're probably pronouncing both pretty clearly fructuum uh, in, uh, in the classical period. Now, uh, this is, when you look at this, it's clearly a, uh, it's sort of a cross between the second and third declension. Uh, the, 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 uh, the ibus endings are, tip, you know, are typical third, fourth, fifth declension endings. Uh, the um is also, the, that um is almost uniformly the, uh, the genitive uh, plural ending. Now, in neuter nouns, uh, the data singular is always in u, although there are very few neuter nouns. Uh, you, could you decline cornu for me with horn? Cornu, cornus, cornu, 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 cornua, cornuum, cornibus, cornua, cornibus. Okay, good. The, um, there are, uh, there is a problem with some fourth declension nouns, and, and that is there's a tendency to slip back and forth between the second and fourth uh, declensions because they look the same in the nominative. So the the worst one of the worst nouns in uh, Latin <clears throat> is domus. I'm not going to go into the complexities, but it could be domus 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 or domus domi, and uh, virtually uh, the it, it can shift between second and fourth declension back and forth back and forth depending on on the writer and the period. You also have problems uh, with senatus, senate, uh, for for the same, uh, uh, because these are both rather old and common words. Now, um, there are some feminine nouns like acus, needle, anus, uh, old lady, Domus, idus, namely uh, the id, which is uh, uh, a calculated part of the Roman ca- character, you know. So, so there are uh, tribus, tribe. So there is a a, a well, uh, it's a, about a, a dozen words roughly in that are feminine. Most are um, most are masculine. Now, so this is probably payback for the the handful of masculine first declension nouns. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Maybe a bit and, of equity uh, there. And you know there are feminine second declension nouns of uh, especially city names and tree names. So, okay. uh, but uh, you, uh, for many years I I never told the first year Latin students because it would just because conf- if you tell them that they get confused and they say well it could be anything. 
And so, like the new edition of Jenny and Scudder, it'll go on and on and on in first-year Latin, giving you all these details, but I suspect that it really doesn't, uh, doesn't help the student. It's better to learn the big picture now <laughs> and then uh, fill in. One of the troubles, I think, in Latin textbooks and in Latin courses is that um, really... Uh, if you go through a standard sequence, like if you go through four years of Jenny and Scudder, you get most of your grammar the first year, you get, you get the subjunctive maybe in the first term of the second year, but then you quit learning grammar. And uh, there are very few, like if, for example, Stephen, you've, you've studied French. If you take a, a normal cycle of French, like based on a couple of years in high school, you know, you take first year French in college, then, and that's, uh, you do most of your grammar then, and second year French, you do some advanced grammar. But you know, when you get to, uh, if you get to fourth or fifth year French, at least when I was a student, you're taking conversational French and learning a whole bunch of, of uh, you're relearning some of the more uh, grammatical fine points. And we don't tend to do that in teaching Latin and Greek. And I, I think it's a mistake. Graduate students also who are going to go off and teach Latin and Greek, both at the high school and university level, they don't, uh, they don't go off. Now, they're beautiful reference grammars uh, to Latin and Greek, and uh, which, which you, you should have two or three of them. The, the most commonly used is probably uh, Bennett's Latin grammar, which there's a, a large edition and a small edition, and I used to require the small edition for all my college students. But um, the truth is that um, people think they know Latin better than they really know it, typically. This is, this is true of PhDs. You know, and it's, I don't entirely blame them. I, I blame a system that seems to say, let's go on and study literature. I suppose part of that, Dr. Fleming, is that they want to excite the students because I, I remember being a first year Latin student and, and the second year that says, well, you know, we get to read Caesar, yeah. you know, and then the third year students like, well, we're reading Cicero. You got to wait for that. And then the fourth year Latin students are like, well, you guys, we're reading Solace, Ovid. You guys can read those other, you know, boring texts. And so the idea of graduation and moving forward, the idea mm -hmm. that sometime in second year Latin, I'm going to be reading Caesar. That's very exciting for, well, I, for me, I was 14 at the time. That's very exciting. Oh, and then I'm going to get to read Cicero, but the reality is I suppose that most third-year Latin students are not really prepared to read Cicero. No, they're not. Uh, they Maybe once upon a time, maybe, maybe in, in uh, 18th century England, but um, I, I, they, Cicero, what I, I found, and um, I don't know if, if um, homeschooling people or self-schooling uh, students w can make use of this, but I was once, I had to teach a third-year uh, course in, uh, at Miami of Ohio, third-year Latin, and uh, it was, Cicero was specified, so I began with, it was a, I think it was a year-long course, uh, I started with Cicero's letters, because the letters are colloquial with short sentences, and uh, you know, there's a certain, they present certain difficulties because, you know, Cicero assumes, you know, you're in on whatever the conversation is. But there's a, there's a very nice little uh, textbook which, uh, with the letters, with notes. And uh, I, I piled on top of that. Then I, I gave them what I never do in a Latin course. I gave them some English readings in the lives of Julius Caesar, Marcus Crassus, Pompey, and I made them make little in-class reports. 
And by the end of studying Cicero's letters and some of the speeches, a, uh, a fourth-year uh, college student who was going off to law school the next year, he was a political science major, he told me that he had learned more about the reality of politics in, in, in this course than he had in all his political science courses. Because Cicero was a master, not just a great writer, but a master politician. And in the letters, uh, in his, his speeches, he doesn't always tell the truth. But in his letters, he's very, very candid. Those letters were so startling that when they were dug, when uh, Petrarch came across them, they had, they'd been missing a long time, and Petrarch starts reading them. Cicero is his hero. He writes a letter to Cicero. Obviously, Cicero's been dead for 1,400 years or something. <laughs> but he writes a letter to Cicero, wherever you are in the next world, and he expresses his disappointment in him that, that the letters show what the reality of Roman politics was like. To, to, to a Machiavellian, and every, you, every, everyone has to be a Machiavellian if you're going to get involved in politics, to a Machiavellian, Cicero's letters are a great, uh, great asset. Hmm. Well, back to the fourth declension. One of the things about the fourth, most words in the fourth declension, we've been talking so far about some strange words like domus, acus, cornu. Most words of the fourth declension, however, are formed from the fourth principal part of a verb. And in fact, I think it's theor- I think it was still an active, an active, organic, creative formation. You could take any fourth principal part, portatos, amatos, and cha- and turn it into a fourth declension verbal noun, meaning something like carrying or loving and this is um, this is or and, and some words that we think of as just regular words like fructus fruit fructus but it's fruit in the sense of that which is enjoyed like the fruits of his labor it can also be used of uh, fruit on a tree but but it's it comes from the verb fruor frui fructus which means having enjoyed. And so, uh, so many, or a word like the uh, word for army, exercitus. Well, that comes from exerceo, exerceo, exercui, exercitus. So the overwhelming majority of words in the fourth declension are really simply the fourth principal part of the verb declined in this declension. And this leads to something which I'll just mention today, and we'll take up uh, later when we get into more uh, uh, advanced grammar. But there is something called the supine, <coughs> which does not mean lying back on the sofa watching television, which is uh, an occupation many people engage in, <coughs> but rather the supine is the fourth principal part of the verb, declined in the uh, uh, fourth declension, and you can use the uh, ablative form uh, as, a, uh, as a verbal noun with a, with a verb of motion to express a kind of purpose. You know, he came for doing such and such. And similarly, you can also use it in the ablative, in the U form, in the ablative form, to mean by doing something. As I said, we'll, we'll take this up in, uh, in, 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 greater, uh, 
in, in detail and look at examples later. But one of the really uh, the uh, creative aspects of the fourth declension is the way it can turn all of these fourth principle parts of verbs in, into very useful verbal nouns. And you know, one of the, one of the problems for Latin students is that purpose clauses in Latin, uh, you, you have to know a good deal of Latin, you have to know how to use uh, the present and imperfect subjunctive. And so, you know, in other words, if you wanted to say, uh, I, I, I came to town to buy some stuff. Well, there are ways, now see in English we just use it in an infinitive, I came to town to buy. In Latin, the normal way would be an ut plus, in, uh, plus the subjunctive. And this, this is hard for students, but you could sit with a verb of coming and going, you could simply use the uh, accusative of the supine with a verb to come or to go. And it's, it's, a, it's a quick shortcut so that uh, you, can, you can avoid some of those subjunctives. Hmm. Well, before our listeners assume the supine position themselves, Dr. Fleming, perhaps we should uh, finish today's episode. Indeed. Um, I will say, I think the supine and the ablative of fill-in-the-blank 37 times it are things that a serious Latin student cannot put aside and say, well, you know, that's a special case or something that I don't really need to know. Mastery of these basics, the, the sort of the hard side of Latin, is essential if you want to get to the fun side of Latin, which is the reading part. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. It is, it's a little bit like, um, you know, you, um, my, my father owned a baseball team. And there are people who want to start playing baseball, well, I want to hit the big run. And, uh, and you know, a 17-year-old kid trying out with a, with a minor league team, you know, he wants to hit or he wants to pitch. And instead, the manager says, uh, I want you to run laps in the outfield. What? <laughs> yeah, I want you to run laps. You got to have good running legs. And then he says, uh, you know, I want you to, I want you to, I want you to play catch. I want you to play fungo, you know, with the, these little bats and things. And well, when, when, when do I get to sit, stand up at the plate and take a cut at the ball? Don't worry, don't worry. The point is that the fundamentals you have to, you have to master the fundamentals, and you have to get yourself in good shape before, because that way, Latin becomes easy. And I'll tell you exactly the wrong way that everybody wants to do Latin. And, and I know this from cruel experience with my own children, with students, with adults, with friends who think they're learning Latin. What they want to do is they read over the lesson. So they get a sort of a, a great idea. Oh, yeah, I ended the fourth declension. That's the U declension. I got it. I got it. And the, 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 uh, the ablative case, I got it. And then they want to read the lesson. Well... They haven't memorized the vocabulary. They haven't memorized the grammar. So what do they do? They flip back. Do they go back two pages? Oh, oh, I got it. And they're <laughs> constantly flipping back. They're not reading Latin. They're letting the textbook read the Latin for them. They're relying on the dictionary and the grammar that's built into the textbook. No, what you need, and, and, and then they come to class with the, with the text marked up you know, with notes in the margin of the book, or they've got little cheat notes. I've had students who didn't think this was cheating. Some, <laughs> some sweet little homeschooled uh, kids I was helping, and they'd come in and, and I'd say, uh, 
put all put all notebooks and notepaper aside. Show me your clean text without any notes, because I don't care what you wrote last night from copying, uh, from cribbing uh, a translation or copying notes from the book. What I care about is what is in your head right now. What can you do without notes? I tell you, this this panics kids. This really <laughs> panics them. But it's the only way to do But put it in your head. That is, develop, develop the knowledge and the strength and the muscles, the mental intellectual muscles, so that you can read without grammar and dictionary or notes. You got to do it without the safety rope. That's right. Well, if you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email thomas at fleming.foundation. We want to remind you that Latin is a production of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to james at fleming.foundation. As always, thanks to our Gold and Charter members, who we produce these podcasts for, and who ensure that they can be produced in the first place. I want to thank Dr. Fleming for his time, and until next episode, on behalf of the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.